my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for the apple seed, an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. On the apple seed. We believe that great stories can change your family's world. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we're excited to bring you an hour of great stories today. Now, sometimes on the show, we bring you stories surrounding a theme, say stories about being brave or stories about first jobs or stories about parents and children. And today, well, we just kept being torn in two directions. On one hand, we had an outlandish tall tale we wanted to bring you, a performance by the terrific South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry, a story that no one on earth could mistake for a true story. But on the other hand, we love true stories too, and we came across a program at the Brigham Young University Law School that uses the power of true stories to help make leaders out of law students. And we wanted to tell you the story of what they're doing too. And in the behind the scenes battle between bringing you tall tales and true tales, there was only one thing to do. We decided to bring you a little of both. The thing the tall tales and the true tales have in common is that they're both amazing, remarkable stuff, whether it's Reuben Felix talking about why he decided to become a lawyer or Tim Lowry talking about heading to California to strike it rich, panning for gold. And that's where we're going to begin, that tall tale. It's a story about cutting down impossibly tall redwoods. Remember, it's just a tall tale. We'd never suggest you try that at home. And there's other stuff in the story, too, that if it were a true tale would be, well, let's say, disturbing. But it's not a true tale, not at all. It's a tall tale. A little bit of truth stretched into something ridiculous. That's how he describes it. And you'll hear him describe it that way as he begins to tell the story. Tim joined us in the Appleseed studio to tell this tale. And when he did, I asked him about how he made the leap into being a storyteller full time. After all, he's done a lot of other stuff. He spent time in the classroom as a teacher, for example. How does a guy like Tim decide that storytelling is what he wants to do with his grown-up life? Well, here's what Tim said. I had always wanted to be a performer. I went to the circus when I was six years old, and I so wanted to be a performer. But I had a little faith crisis and became a school teacher instead. (laughs) And so five years later, when I up and quit teaching school and called my mom and said, guess what? I quit my real job, and I'm going to be a storyteller. She said, wonderful. I know that's what you were meant to do. So I have, I'm a showman who has the rare privilege of having a mother who wanted me to go into show business. <laughs> Tim Lowry talking about how he came to be a storyteller and, of course, the support he got when he told his mom about it. So Tim's going to tell us that tall tale now. You know, we talk to storytellers from all over the world, and one thing that uh, a lot of international storytellers tell us when we ask them, you know, what are some of the differences between telling stories in your country and telling stories in the United States? They have similar answers. They have to do with the kinds of stories that get told internationally and the kinds of stories that get told in the United States. They say that United States storytellers, for example, are a lot more prone to tell personal stories or tall tales. Now, of course, there are fantastical tales all over the world, but tall tales like this one seem to be the domain of American storytelling. This is Tim Lowry, again, recorded live in the Appleseed studio, a story full of exaggeration and wild adventure, unbelievable details, legendary figures, a real whopper, and you're going to love it. We're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. I do love the western section of the United States, and I love to tell tall tales. I'm horrified at the number of school children who don't really understand what a tall tale is. And often when I'm out of school, I have a very limited time frame, so I have to do a little bit of teaching as I'm telling stories, and you have to get it in quick. So I usually define tall tales for them as a little bit of truth stretched into something absolutely ridiculous. And if I have a little more time in... Uh, 
lesson time, I'll say, well, uh, the world is filled with stories. The people of Europe are, are famous for their wonderful fairy tales and folk tales, and the people of Asia, they are famous for wisdom literature. But in these United States, we can lie better than anybody else on the planet. We are the owners of the tall tale. I was watching the History Channel one night, and there was this show on there about the gold rush out in California, you know, 1849 Sutter's Mill and all like that. And I thought, I'm going to go out west and strike it rich on a gold claim. Why should I be working so hard as a storyteller when I could just go out there and strike it rich and live the life of ease the rest of my born days? So I told my wife I was headed out to California to strike it rich on a gold claim. She said, that'll be fine. I'll have supper hot and ready for you when you get back home. And I climbed on the train. We chugged out to California. As soon as I got off the train, there was this old timer standing there on the rail platform. He was 100 if he was a day. So I figured he knew everything about California. California might have even built the place himself. He lived so long. And I asked him, I said, tell me, old timer, where do I go to pan for gold like I saw on the History Channel on the television? He said, oh, you greenhorns, you come out here from the east and you think you're going to strike it rich on a gold claim? It's very dangerous, hard work. You've got to go way up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And there's all kinds of wild animals that will attack you up there, bear and mountain lion. It's very, very dangerous. I said, oh, I'm not afraid of bear and mountain lion. I'm from South Carolina. We have alligator where I live. You know what an alligator is. It's a dinosaur that's been hungry for a million years. So I'll be fine. I'll be just fine. He said, well, I would advise you to learn everything you can about the dangers of this frontier territory before you strike out. So I went inside the rail station and there was a magazine rack there. They were selling copies of the old farmer's almanac. Everybody knows no matter where you are in the world, you should live your life according to the old farmer's almanac. Yeah. Now, I mean the yellow old farmer's almanac, not that one with the blue cover. You know, I wouldn't do anything by the dates and calendar in that almanac. You need the yellow old farmer's almanac. And sure enough, there was information in there about wild animals, about bear in particular. It said that there had been an increase of bear activity in the United States. And so they had written an article about that, particularly for rural folks and all. And it said that if you were going hiking in the woods, you could take precautions. One of the things you could do was tie jingle bells onto your clothing. Because when you walked along, the jingle bells would ring and the bear from a distance would hear that and then he would run off because he doesn't really want to meet up with you and that would scare off the bear and as an extra precaution carry a bottle of pepper spray in your pocket so that if you surprise a bear or he didn't hear the jingle bells then you might spray him with the pepper spray and he'll run away might give you a little time to get away from the bear before he attacks and uh, then it said uh, you might need to be familiar with signs that a bear has been nearby and there was a section of the article that showed you how to evaluate bear scat Y'all know what that is, right? Yeah, it's the stuff the bear leaves behind after he's been around for a while. And it said that there were two types of bear that you needed to be aware of, the black bear and the grizzly bear. And, and if you came up on some bear scat and you picked through it, uh, black bear scat was usually full of blueberries and bits of squirrel fur, and grizzly bear scat was full of jingle bells and pepper spray. <laughs> So after I read that, I decided I'd just take my chances. And I started off up through that mountain trail, and I got way up high in the Sierra Nevada. And sure enough, there was a little row of cabins and a creek out behind those cabins, a bunch of men in there, Levi's. They were all squatted over that creek, panning for gold. I elbowed my way in, said, make way for South Carolina. They said, no, 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 no. I said, yes, yes. It's a free country. I can pan for gold if I want to. And they said, no, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. But that's not what we mean. You can't just start right in panning for gold. You're going to have to be here a while. I mean, it, it comes out of the little stones in the creek beds and just tiny little flecks. It's going to take you days, weeks, maybe years to get enough gold to be a rich man. So first thing you have to do is build you a house. Oh, I forgot that. So a man went into his log cabin. He came back with an ax. He said, here, you can cut you some logs and build you a house. Well, I looked around and I said, well, tell me which trees you want me to cut down. I hate it when uh, like uh, the bulldozers come in for a new subdivision. They just mow down all the trees and build all the houses right out in the hot blazing sun. I don't like it when they cut all the shade down. I said, I, I don't want to ruin your shade. So show me which section of the forest you want thinned out. He hooked a thumb around behind him. He said, how about right back there? You could cut that tree down. I turned around and behind me was a tree 
big around as this whole room. And it went way up in the air. I said, I can't cut that down. That's going to make me tired. That's going to make my children tired. That'll make my unborn grandchildren tired. He started laughing. He said, oh, we don't use an ax to cut a redwood down. He said, we save the ax for picking our teeth with. Let me show you how we cut the tree down. He took the ax back into his cabin. He came back with a big jar of peanut butter about that big around, a great big jar. He had bought it at Costco. And <laughs> he pulled the top of that peanut butter open and he stuck his hand down in it and got a big gob of peanut butter and he started walking all the way around that great big tree, smearing a line of peanut butter on the bark. When he had finished, he went down the river and stuck his fingers in his mouth and whistled real loud and a whole herd of beef come running up out of the creek and they started licking on that peanut butter and then they started chewing through the bark and they got to running like a pack of buzz saws around that tree chips flying every which way pretty soon they had gnawed that tree down till it was standing up on a little stick about as big as my tiny finger I said oh I know what to do now I thanked the beavers they all ran jumped back in the river I started to push that tree over and that gold miner he said wait 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 safety first he reached in his pocket and took out a cell phone and went boop, 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 boop. I heard somebody on the other end answer, hello. He yelled, timber, poop, stuck the phone back in his pocket. I said, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, this tree is so tall. When it comes down, it's going to fall into the next state. So we have to call into Nevada and tell them a tree is coming down so they can get out of the way. I said, you're a liar. He said, no, go to the edge of the mountain and look. So I walked to the edge of a mountain cliff and look off. Down there in Nevada, people run around, timber, timber. Mamas are jumping in their minivans, running to school, checking kids out early, timber, timber. Everybody cleared out of the way, and I gave that tree a push. He said, that's so tall, it'll take it a couple days to fall. So you might as well come in my house and live with me for a couple days while we wait for that tree to come down. Sure enough, into the second day, we heard it hit. Wham! It made a nice clean break right down the side of the mountain into Nevada. And we had called ahead so nobody got hurt, except cows don't have cell phones. <laughs> and I had accidentally smashed a whole herd of cattle into hamburger meat. But that turned out to be a good thing. We had a big backyard fry up with all that hamburger, made a lot of friends that way. It was a lot of fun. And I didn't need to cut another tree, not another one, because I could just live in that great big hollow log. You think a double wide trailer is nice? You should have seen my log. I was comfortable as a skunk in a stump. So I moved into that log. I said, now I'm ready to pan for gold. And they said, uh-uh, not yet. I said, well, I got me a house to live in. What do I need now? They said, what you gonna do for food? Well, I knew right away I couldn't keep smashing cattle into hamburger. That would make enemies really quick. And I said, I don't reckon you've got a grocery store around here. They said, no, 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 no grocery stores. We hunt for our meat. I said, oh, now I live in South Carolina. We have hunting lodges and all that. Give me a gun and I can hunt. They said, this is California. We don't have any guns. I said, well, how am I supposed to kill something without a gun? They said, you don't need a gun. We'll show you how to do it. This man walked out and he sat down on that big 24-foot stump that I had sawed down. And he sat there for a little while, and I sat next to him. We waited, and a duck came by. He gave that duck a look, and it just fell right out of the sky, dead at his feet. I said, I missed it. Do that again. We waited a while, and a turkey came by. He gave it a look. Bam, turkey hit the ground, dead as Judas Iscariot. I said, how are you doing that? And he says to me, I ugly him down. I said, ugly him down? He said, yeah. He said, you look the bird right in the eyeball, give it a real mean, ugly look, and it scares it so bad it has a heart attack and falls right out of the sky. I said, wow, who taught you how to do that? He said, my wife. Said, Why don't you bring her out here and let her hunt for you? He said, uh-uh, she tears them up too bad. So he taught me how to ugly birds down. I sat down on that stump. A little while, a duck came by. I gave it a look. And it flew off like it was laughing at me. I waited. A turkey came up. I gave it a look. Off it went. I sat there on that stump, ugly and birds all day. Never could drop one out of the sky. And that's when I realized I was going to starve to death on account of my good looks. I mean, look at this profile, ladies. I should have gone to Hollywood and become a movie star. I thought I was going to starve to death. They said, well, you know, we hunt for meat because we need protein, but 
another source for protein is eggs. You could just collect eggs. I said, where are your chickens? They said, we don't have chickens, but up there on the cliff above the camp, there's an eagle's nest. There'll be eggs in there. So I started climbing up to the top of that cliff. Now there's snow on the top of the Sierra Nevada, even in the summertime. There was snow way up there. I was walking through snow right up to my Adam's apple. I finally got up to a big pile of sticks and I reached in there to get some eagle's eggs. Of course, the mama eagle, she didn't like that one bit. She came flying up out of there with her talons out. She's going to jerk my eyeballs out. I had to get out of there and get out of there fast. So I just jumped up on top of that snow bank, sat down on the seat of my britches, went sliding down the mountain. While I slid so fast, the friction caught my britches on fire. And I was yelling, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. And the gold miners grabbed me and they threw me in the river and that boiled all the water in the river and we had boiled trout for supper. So that turned out to be just fine. But I didn't stay, you know. I'd burnt the seat of my britches out. I'd nearly killed myself more than once. I thought, this ain't anything like what I saw on the History Channel. That just goes to show you, you can't believe everything you see on television. (laughs) So I went back down the mountain, and I was going to get on the train and come back to South Carolina, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh. I told my wife I was going to strike it rich on a gold claim, and if I don't come home with something for her, she's going to be very upset. So then I saw it right there in the rail station. You might have seen one at your local Walmart. There was this big glass box and you drop 50 cents in it and you get about 30 seconds to drive a claw around and see if you can grab a prize. I fished $47.50 worth of quarters through that machine before I got good enough to draw that claw around like a professional and I grabbed a little gold ring. It's not real gold. I think it's spray paint, but don't tell my wife. She doesn't know the difference. She never listens to this radio show, so it'll be fine. And I stuck that in my pocket. I got on the train, and I started for home. Well, when the train pulled into the station in South Carolina, there was my wife waiting for me. She said she'd be there and have supper hot and ready for me when I got home. And I pulled that ring out of my pocket and flashed it out the window. I said, look here. Look what I got you. She said, oh, you struck it rich on a gold claim. And she got so excited, she tripped and fell off the rail platform, and the train ran smack over. I got off the train. There lay my wife's legs. There lay my wife's arms. There lay my wife's head. And that made me mad. I mean, I'd gone out to California, worked my fingers to the bone, nearly died trying to strike it rich. And I brought her a gold ring and her laying around like that. I said, get up and pull yourself together. She did. We went home, had supper. And that was the end of that. <laughs> Tim Lowry with A Tall Tale. Always great to have Tim in the studio with us. You know, I wonder why tall tales seem to be the domain of American storytelling. Why we're prone to tell stories that are real whoppers like that one. We're going to talk about that story in just a moment around the desk with our producers, Heather Bigley and Brian Tanner. That's coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. pleasure to hear from the great South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry, shared with us a tall tale. We recorded it live in the Appleseed studio with our terrific studio audience. And it's a pleasure now to sit around the desk and chat for a moment about that story with our producers, Dr. Heather Bigley, Dr. Brian Tanner. Guys, welcome to the desk. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Hey, it's fun to be here. I always love hearing a whopper like that. I know, kid. (laughs) (laughs) He said that often kids don't Um, learn about tall tales, but I think there's just something innate in kids where they are just drawn to exaggerated stories like this. My daughter, I don't know how well she knows, like Paul Bunyan and all these these traditional ones, but man, can she spin a tall tale. She (laughs) just has this boundless imagination, and so many of the tales that she tells are about the gallopies. The gallopies? Oh, I'm fascinated. The gallopies. So we got her one of those Thai stuffed animals, beanie boos that have those, those big cute eyes. They're just sure. adorable. Yeah. When she was three years old and we we said, what's the name of this? And she was like, Gallopy. You know, and then we got a few more <laughs> over time and she's just started. They all had names. They all had personalities. And she started telling stories about the gallopies. And it became clear, like, the gallopies aren't just like these couple of, of uh, 
stuffed animals right here. It's a whole, like, nation of critters. And they have a complex mythology. Like, uh, uh, some of the things, they live in a volcano. Um, there is a queen of the gallopies, and there's an annual competition uh, where the people fight for the role of queen, and they're allowed to use magic or whatever else. Um, gallopies can speak every language. Wow. Every one of them has different powers. Um, they can die over and over again and come back. There's a permanent death, but I'm not quite sure what triggers that, but that, that's part of the <laughs> mythology I don't know. There were gallopy dinosaurs that predated them. Um, there's something called monumus gallopies where it's a hybrid between actual real wild animals, like a wild deer or something, but they have those bright, shiny gallopy those, eyes. Oh, gosh, that actually so, sounds terrifying. Yeah, it does <laughs> sound terrifying. So it's like she just spins these out effortlessly, adding more and more mythology. And we're, we're now, you know, four or five years into the gallopy era. Yeah. <laughs> There's just yeah. so mythology there. And it's like nobody told her that. Nobody taught her that. It's just like some kind of impulse that she has to spin out a tall tale like that. Wow. Hmm. Heather, where does that story take you? Well, uh, this is something actually that Brian was saying earlier, so he gets to talk about it most maybe. But this <laughs> idea that it's a modern tall tale, like this is, sure, uh, you know, we're using the technology and the experiences of today and we're spinning that tale out um, again and again and again. I also, the structure of the tall tale is really interesting to me. He goes here, he goes here, he goes here. He eventually gets home yeah. uh, and, you know, his wife becomes part of the tall tale. Uh, all of that is is sort of a fascinating um, exercise. And I come back to that question of why do we as Americans take delight in this genre, yeah. right? What is it about us? I mean, he has the funny line, like, you know, we Americans are really great at lying, uh, which I hope isn't true. Um, <laughs> I hope that's not what we're known for. But, uh, yeah, what what about this is so um, pleasing, right? Yeah. You know, storytelling on one level is about pleasure. So yeah. what's the pleasure there? Right, yeah. And as I hear you talk about that, I'm thinking about the – uh, uh, well, about the liars contests that exist all over the country now. Right. And tall tale tellers stand on stage and compete with one another uh, uh, to see who can spin the biggest yarn, you know. And they have they, – the, uh, tall tale tellers will tell you about sort of the rules of tall tale telling, right? In the world of a tall tale, it begins in a very plausible way, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there is almost the, – the, the moment in which it turns the corner and becomes – implausible becomes, you know, so tall that it couldn't exist in the real world almost goes by you, you know, and right. you, have, you have to sort of look back to pick up where that. Yeah. Where was, did this you know? go off the rails? Yeah, where where did, did yeah. This, that's that's right. really interesting. It's yeah. as if we have this like United States of America version of magical realism. Who's the biggest or who's the fattest or who's the tallest or who, right? Yeah. What about you, Brian? Where does this story take you? You know, I, I was just thinking about um, the just, I think that humans just have a, a natural tendency to just uh, exaggerate things, especially when time has passed. Mm -hmm. um, I was recently at a funeral for a good friend of mine um, from childhood, and I saw a bunch of friends from high school that I hadn't seen in a really long time. And after the funeral, we we gathered for a lunch, and we were sitting around a table, and we were telling stories about our friends and story about high school. And um, I brought up – a. a the car that he owned in high school. Mm -hmm. It was called The Cow. And it was a, like, 70s Datsun. Datsun, if you I'm, don't know, is... I'm totally there is, for that, yeah. yeah. Then what Nissan was before they had a, yeah. that name change. I mean, just a piece of junk car. Um, and it was covered in rust spots. And so he got some rust remover spray and just sprayed it over all the rust things, but then he didn't bother painting it. So it looked like a cow. It was white with all these spots all over it. And then he took a spray can and he wrote the cow yeah. on it. And everyone at the table had a cow memory. I mean, like we just got up to wild hijinks in the cow and people were throwing out like, wait, wasn't there no floor in the back? Like you could see the road underneath you when you were driving. <laughs> and didn't he lose the keys one time and he stuck a popsicle stick into the ignition and turned it and it turned the car on? And didn't the radio not work? But when you turned it on, it would just 
it would um, make the motor sound louder. So we called AM amplified motor. You know, <laughs> everyone was going around and telling these stories. And after 20 years, it's just kind of like, I can't remember what's real and what's not about the yeah. cow. <laughs> so it kind of became like a tall tale we were sure. all telling there, you know, but it just, it was something that we all had in common, you know. We were talking about other memories, but people were like, well, I wasn't there for that. I don't remember that. But there was something about the cow. And it was yeah. just – and it was – that was my favorite part of the conversation because it was just like we can all hook into this. Yeah. And, and there's something hyperbolic and fun and mythical about this yeah. – <laughs> about the cow. <laughs> and that, you know, I mean th- th- we're, we're straying a little bit from tall tales per se, right? But that that th- – there's a lot of enjoyment in that. I think there's a lot of richness in – you know, our, our own memories, uh, we, we not only do we not remember everything that there was, right, but our memories are also malleable and mm-hmm. and we begin to create a tale. Yeah. And there's a lot of pleasure, a lot of richness that can be derived from sitting down as a group and comparing notes. Yeah. And, and, and bringing sort of all of those remembered parts of the story together yeah. into what – may have really happened yeah <laughs> well and, or you are you are happy to think it did that's right yeah. yeah yeah and and i don't think of that as lying you know like when if if you're just like i really i really really think that i remember it this way sure. you know yeah. <laughs> right. it's just the passage of time sometimes colors in things in a in a strange way that may not have been exactly how it played out yeah well uh there's a lot to talk about and and talking about this tall tale has brought to mind uh, uh, a memory for me. That's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. This is a story about, well, it's about making up a story. Not like a tall tale, and for sure not like a, a lie. But... Well, here's the setup. My dad is a singer-songwriter. He made his living when I was a kid making music on stage and on recordings and in the tiny town where I grew up. Making a living as a singer-songwriter made you something of a local celebrity. And my dad still lives in my hometown, and he still makes a living making and teaching music. And darn it, he's still kind of a local celebrity. I loved that my dad was a singer-songwriter. I loved every one of the songs. I begged to go to shows. I was proud to be the son of a guy who had somehow figured out how to be an artist for a living. I looked at what my friends' dads did for a living, and I figured that they did what they did because they couldn't figure out how to make a living doing what my dad did. My dad, in my mind, was kind of a magician. My hero, for sure. Which was why I was thrown for such a loop when I was in second grade and some kid at school mentioned offhand that his dad didn't think much of my dad. The music, I mean. The kid's dad didn't, as far as I know, have any qualms about my dad's character or personality. He just didn't like the music my dad made. Now, this is not in any way a big deal. In fact, it hardly even registers on the big deal-o-meter. I get that. Bring me your music collection, all the music you love, and it's a sure bet that I'll love some of it and feel like some of it is okay and hate some of it. That's just the way it is. And you'd feel the same way about my music collection. But for me, in second grade, it seemed huge. It really rocked me. I mean... If a kid had said, my dad could beat up your dad, for some reason, this is something that was said sometimes among elementary school students in my day, I might say, no way, my dad could beat up your dad. Again, weirdly, this is a thing that sometimes got said in elementary school. But when a kid said, my dad doesn't like your dad's music, I mean, what do you say? Or rather, at seven years old, what do you know how to say? For me... It was perhaps one of the first times something got bottled up inside me in what might have been a way that was bad for me. One thing's for sure, I thought, I can never let my dad know this. This would just kill him, I thought, at seven years old. But like a little pressure cooker of information, that secret thing began to press on my thoughts, on my spirit. And I felt like I had to somehow, in some way, let off a little bit of pressure to someone. And that's when I made up the story. It was made up, but it wasn't a lie. It was a fiction, a piece of art. I gotta say, it was hardly a story, really. It was really a comic strip. Three panels drawn in pencil. 
And in each panel, there were two boys sitting with their elbows on their knees and their chins in their hands on the playground. And in the first panel, one boy says to the other, I heard someone say something bad about your dad today. And in the next panel, the other boy says, ah, no big deal. And then in the third panel, that same boy continues. He says, it makes him feel like part of the in crowd. That was it, the punchline to the comic strip. I thought it was kind of mildly funny, this idea that there must be a grown-up world where cool people are critical of each other. And if someone is critical of you, you should feel happy because you've kind of arrived. Well, I was seven. And though I was a little nervous about it, I didn't mind showing the strip to my dad. And my dad took a look at my work, my comic strip, my story. And he looked at me and said, Subtle. Just that one word, subtle. And to this day, I don't know if my dad meant that the humor in the comic strip was subtle, which it was, so subtle as to be, shall we say, non-existent, or if he was saying it was a subtle way for me to let him know about someone being critical of him. I can't ask my dad about it now. He doesn't remember the comic strip at all. One thing's for sure, it did the job I needed it to do. It let the pressure off a bit. I could breathe again. I would grow into a person who could talk straighter with my dad about difficult topics. And I would grow to learn that taking criticism in stride is something that people can do without getting too broken. And I would grow to learn that keeping difficult information from someone isn't necessarily a sign of love. My dad would teach me some of that, even though someone in town wasn't crazy about his music. But when I was seven... I learned that when you both had to and couldn't talk to your dad about something you think might hurt him, a story, a tiny three-panel made-up story with pictures, can sort of help. That, as it turns out, I learned all by myself. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's been a pleasure to sit with Heather Bigley and Brian Tanner and talk a little bit about Tall Tales, talk a little bit about Tim Lowry's Tall Tales shared with our studio audience in the Appleseed studio. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, coming up next, you're going to hear about a law school that decided to make storytelling a focus for its law students. And not just for its law students, but to sponsor a contest that would go nationwide and bring storytelling law students together. Why? Well, that's the story. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you in this hour of the Appleseed. We've heard a tall tale from Tim Lowry, an entry in the Radio Family Journal, and up next, the story of a storytelling competition for law students. You've heard me say that great stories can change your world. I say in just about every episode of The Appleseed we ever make, and we believe that. We mean it. Today, we have three stories that, though they may seem really different from each other, They're going to help remind us that stories can shape how we think about ourselves. They shape how we think about where we live and who we live with. It's as if the landscape of our lives only comes alive, only begins to really live once we begin to tell a story about it. Think about that. At the end of a school year, for example, you might talk to your friends about your plans for the summer, and you start to tell a story about what you hope will happen. Sleeping in, staying up late, afternoon walks to the pool, maybe, camping with your grandpa, maybe, or maybe playing baseball with all your new friends in the neighborhood. I dare you to hit it! 
<laughs> Just a moment from the movie The Sandlot, that good old baseball film directed by uh, David Mickey Evans about the neighborhood ball team during the summer of 1962. Maybe it brings back memories for you, but, you know, telling the story of what's going to happen in the summer helps you fill the empty landscape of the future, helps you color in the trees and add the sunset, if you get my meaning. It may not be what's going to happen, but telling the story helps you make the plan. And then, of course, when you come back to school in the fall, you have all the stories from the summer to tell, the things that actually happened. And of course, you shape those stories a little bit by including some details and not others, by telling certain events and leaving certain others out. You know, the ones you tell help you connect to the beginning and the middle and the end of your adventures. So there's the story you tell before the thing happens to help you plan and anticipate. And then there's the story you tell after the thing happens to help you give shape to the events that actually occurred. And when we were talking about this, Heather Bigley, our producer, remembered a post-summer scene from the movie Mean Girls in which everyone, including the faculty, is coming back to school and the principal, played by Tim Meadows, invites a moment of post-summer storytelling from Ms. Norbury, played by Tina Fey. Here's the exchange. So, uh, how was your summer? I got divorced. Oh. Uh, my carpal tunnel came back. I win. Well, maybe summer baseball stories are more fun to talk about than carpal tunnel or the crumbling of relationships. But even that tough stuff is shaped by the story we choose to tell about it. You're going to hear a piece about the value of organizing life occurrences, sometimes happy ones and sometimes tougher ones, into stories that help us make meaning out of them. In fact, we're going to introduce you to a law school that decided to make storytelling a major focus of its program for law students. And we'll learn how that storytelling focus affects and changes their study of the law. To get into law school, of course, you you already have to have completed four years of college. And because law school is extremely competitive, you have to have really done great in those college courses. And deciding to become a lawyer is not a whimsical choice. No one makes that choice lightly. And what we learn from the participants in the law storytelling competition that we're just about to hear about is that those people who decide to become lawyers have important stories of their own, the stories that motivate the kind of work that it takes to become a lawyer. And we also learn that telling those stories, those stories that motivate and inspire us to do the hard things that we have to do, help bring us closer to the people around us. That's what you want to listen for as we bring you this next story on The Appleseed. I want to introduce you to somebody. Uh, my name is Amberly Page, and I am the Publications Manager at BYU Law. And BYU Law School has a big focus on teaching their students to tell stories, and they've devoted programs and resources to this idea. But why would a law school care about how to tell stories? One of the things that Dean Smith is fond of saying, and he is quoting uh, Dean Jim Rasband, who was the dean before him, but he used to say that law, getting a law degree is getting a leadership degree. Um, and Dean Smith also believes in that. And the skills of effective storytelling are essential both for people who want to lead and people who practice law. And they believe at the law school that storytelling teaches all sorts of skills. So they've devoted several different programs to teaching their students the how and why of stories. The Storytelling Project has four main elements. And two of those elements are competitions. One is an in-house competition called Proximate Cause, and that initiative is about helping students see how they can affect social change um, through their legal work and their leadership in the larger world. And those students then write stories about their experiences in getting proximate, as they call it, to causes and to people. And they focus on how their law degrees are helping them better move society forward. And the other competition reaches beyond the BYU law school community. 
Mainstage is our national competition. So we send out an invitation to all of the law schools across the United States. And 10 law students have their stories chosen. And those 10 law students come from all over the country to share them on the main stage. And we have had, over the course of law stories, we have had students from the East Coast to the West Coast. So we've had um, students from George Washington and schools in North Carolina, um, through the Midwest, Chicago and Michigan. Um, and then I don't believe we've had California yet, but we have done Nevada and Arizona. And as these students gather from their respective parts of the country with people they've never met, they sit down together before the actual main stage event to record and share their stories with the other competitors. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're reflective, and sometimes they're intensely personal. Many times it will be the story of of a a really difficult time they've had in their life or a really powerful time they've had in their life where they've been affected by the law. As Amberly has watched these students share emotional and poignant stories with each other, she notices something begin to happen between them. After that initial practice session, where they hear each other's stories for the first time, the students have an almost elevated sense of connection to one another. And so from, you know, Wednesday when they are meeting each other, I think the only people who know each other usually are the two BYU students, and maybe they haven't even interacted (laughs) that much. And by that Saturday, it is what feel like lifelong friendships that and, and people that I think really they would feel comfortable calling on in moments of need. And so it just builds this sense of community. In fact, at the event in 2020, An interesting thing began to unfold. Remember 2020, of course, back when things began to shut down for the first time due to the COVID pandemic. Well, the Law Stories on the Main Stage event was actually held right as that shutdown began. That day, the day of the Law Stories event, was they made an announcement that that was the last day of in-person class for the law school. Everything went, well, they took a break and then it was determined in the end for everything to go online. So it's the last day of in-person class. Most of these students are far from home and wondering if they'll even be able to get back. And it's in this context that a few of them begin to really worry. Interestingly, as we've talked about, the fact that they had built those relationships and telling their stories the day before made things a little bit more... um, they were able to support each other a little bit, even in that next day. We had one of the students, specifically her parents, were really concerned about her being able to get home, and she started to get a little panicky about it. And I think it meant something to her to be in, you know, in a group of people that she could share that with and everyone, you know, could be supportive. And luckily, everybody got out safely and every everyone was fine. Now, you might be wondering at this point, what kind of stories are these that can bring people together when they barely know each other? Well, as Amberly said, they're personal tales. They're the kinds of stories we all have, the stories about why we do the things we do, why we have the goals we have. Um, One of a student's talked about growing up in an area where there was a lot of interaction with the law, all of which was negative. You know, seeing family members who were being arrested or um, friends that were on the uh, wrong side of the law often and and that they would look at him and when they knew that he was studying law, they would look at him and he thought that it, it was potentially a thing that they would mock him about and instead it was kind of a, a moment of hope. Here's Reuben Felix himself telling part of that story. I got you, I said to my brother, with our faces pressed together and four officers piled on my back. He was arrested, taken in, and returned nursing a busted ankle. These experiences and others like them conjured within me a resentment for the law. Yet my resentment did not fix anything. Only after reflecting did I realize my need to understand the law. Maybe the law had power to help people like me. Maybe I could change the law. Perhaps I should be a lawyer after all. For the first time in my life, I had a purpose. And over the next six years, I clawed my way into law school. 
During a recent trip back home, my brother and I cruised the neighborhood. My brother made sure everyone knew I was on my way to becoming a lawyer. Some of our friends' comments reflected their pessimism towards the law. Yet they all encouraged me. Echale ganas. Hurry up, I need your services. I hope you get into politics someday. Looking back, I feel proud to have made it this far. But I also feel guilty. Why am I the one here? I think of the people I grew up with that are just as capable. We are not very different, yet we live in separate worlds. It wasn't my life choices alone that afforded me this opportunity. I, too, made many mistakes. That is when I realized that my story does not exist alone, but rather only exists because and in the context of the stories of others. We are all part of an all-encompassing narrative, one that promises deliverance. That's Ruben Felix with just a little bit of a story that he shared in a recent iteration of the main stage storytelling show. And each of the students that come to Law Stories on the main stage share these tales that really bring out the humanity in a profession that may at some time seem kind of cutthroat. And it's because of them sharing their stories that we can see into the hearts of these people and see why these students wanted to come to law school in the first place. This is Amberly Page. A lot of students come to law school with a desire to, to change the world for the better. That's the thing they are coming with. But no one has ever said that learning to change the world is easy, or even that law school is easy. And these law students, sometimes when you come into law school, it's a difficult experience, and it can be a really challenging and sometimes a... a um, you feel torn down in the beginning. Um, some of that's necessary because they are reframing your brain to think like a lawyer, and that's a real thing. Um, so some of that is necessary, but for some of these students, that's a, a really difficult experience, and I know that was true for me. As a law student, that was a hard thing to go through was that that breaking down and retraining. And after all this focus on learning to use and tell stories, how does it help these students? Well... Amberly summed it up pretty well. When they are telling stories, they seem to regain a sense of of their power, their personal power. Um, they chant, they connect back to some of these stories that brought them to law school. They connect back to some of their essential self, and and I think it gives them a sense of, oh yeah, this is a thing that I know matters, and I can help make a difference in this. Um, and being a storyteller as, a, as well as a lawyer, being effective in both of those things will help me do that better. Thanks to Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers, for bringing the story of the main stage show, that aspect of the Law Stories storytelling competition, to our attention. It's been such a pleasure for me to share this hour with you. And since we've got just a few minutes left together, we thought we'd give tall tales the last word. Earlier in the hour, you heard me chatting with Brian and Heather about tall tale competitions that spring up from time to time in one part of the country or another. Liars contests, they're called. And we visited one, sponsored by the Timpanoga Storytelling Festival. And we heard storyteller George McEwen tell a tall tale about a cat. Now, tall tale telling isn't as easy as it may sound, but George's audience is right with him as he shares a story about the love-hate relationship he has with his wife's feline friend, Nico. We'll bring you just a little bit of the story here. In the run-up to this moment in the story, George has described deciding to prank Nico by waiting until Nico isn't paying attention and then sounding an air horn in the kitchen where Nico is snoozing. Well, how does that work out? Well, Nico winds up on the ceiling and George finds himself unable to pry the cat loose. Using a saw to cut out the section of the ceiling where Nico is hanging on will surely do the trick, right? Right? And here's just a little bit of George McEwen's entry in that liar's contest. I heard that cat say right in my brain, when she gets home, you're going to be in so much trouble. I'll just wait right here. 
Then he dug in his claws and smiled like the Cheshire cat. Now, I know what happens to a cat on a hot tin roof, but one on a drywall ceiling is a new one on me. And since Nico was planning on going the distance, I'd have to get him down myself. So I got out a ladder, and he didn't move. When I shoved him, he didn't budge at all. So I grabbed him like a furry covered pull-up bar and did a few chin-ups. He just grunted and held on. Well, in desperation, I wrapped one arm around him and took out a saw and started cutting a hole around him. <laughs> Figuring in my desperation, I could explain a three-foot hole in the ceiling to Leslie, but not the new lifelike chandelier. <laughs> in hindsight, I'd wish I had a better plan, but as I have learned, hindsight is only gained when you land on it. As I reached the last inch of the cut, the saw hit a power line and 220 volts zapped through the two of us. Nico puffed up like a ball and I jerked up sideways in the air, catching my shoelace in the spinning blades of the ceiling fan. <laughs> Being fully electrified, I was unable to let go of that saw, which worked like a rudder as we spun in tighter and tighter circles in our wake, the ceiling hung down like the tired coils of a slinky. Yes, it truly looked like everything was gonna hit the fan this time. And we were gonna go into that light in more ways than one. That's when Nico looked up at me and said, and you wonder why I don't like you. Suddenly my shoelace broke and we flew out the open window. Nico atop his drywall flying saucer with me trailing behind like an abductee. Yes, he was a true UFFO as he went over that back fence. That is to say an unhappy flying furry object. As for me, I landed upside down and backwards in the rose bushes. I gained some valuable hindsight and some very unwanted thorns. You see, I had failed to remember one of the oldest adages out there, so learn from my example. Whether you're dealing with man's best friend or his worst enemy, you should always let sleeping dogs and cats lie. <laughs> Storyteller George McEwen with just a little bit of his entry in one of those liars contests we told you about earlier in the hour. It's been an hour filled with tales both true and tall. And we'll post that whole story from George McEwen as one of what we call bites, mini episodes of the show, just a single story long, just a few minutes long in case you only have a few minutes and you want to spend them with some great storytelling. You can find those bites at byuradio.org on the BYU Radio app, or by subscribing to the podcast. And if you've found us on the podcast, feel free to rate us and write a review. It helps people find the show. If you got a comment for us, or even a story of your own, shoot us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. That's theappleseed at byu.edu. We love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley with help from Trent Horton. The show is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Sam Payne. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Seed.